Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is February the 6th, 2022. As always, I'm talking to you from the great city of San Francisco, perched on the edge of Silicon Valley, and it's been quite a week in Silicon Valley for people paying attention. And I use that word ironically paying because we're all paying for Silicon Valley's uh, problems. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg, you can see him on screen if you're watching this, he's sweating and it's no great surprise. His company, uh, we think of it as Facebook, but he renamed it Meta Platforms because he wants to own the world, slumped by more than $230 billion last week, which is more than all the money lost in the great crash of 1929. So the future of private companies is something being very much on our mind in this show. We also had my old friend Albert Wenger, the Union Square venture capitalist, who's written a book, World After Capital, which is a hopeful book about getting beyond joint stock private companies, imagining a capitalism that works for all of us. Albert, as a good venture capitalist, is optimistic. I'm less so. Um, we also had the British historian of venture capital, Sebastian Malaby, on the show, talking about a rival kind of economic system to joint stock companies uh, in which venture capital drives uh, the economy. But these private companies are really troublesome. We had uh, my Oakland neighbor, Jacob Ward, on the show earlier this week, talking about how artificial intelligence and private AI companies are actually threatening humanity. Ward is certainly not the first or the last person to warn us about how private companies getting hold of AI can actually undermine our humanity. And uh, just a make you even more depressed. My old friend Chris Schroeder was on the show talking about Web3, crypto, and the global unleashing that is about to result from the new technologies of Silicon Valley. This idea of um, irresponsible, unaccountable private companies isn't a new one. We in Silicon Valley like to think that we're always inventing the future and it's never happened before. But of course it has. Uh, Englishman, uh, uh, an 18th century Englishman called uh, uh, Lord Edward Thurlow uh, said something wonderful about uh, private companies. I'm not sure it's wonderful, but certainly perceptive. He said, corporations have neither bodies to be published. Uh, sorry, not published. Whoops. Corporations <laughs> have neither bodies to be punished nor souls to be condemned. They therefore do as they like. Uh, Lord Thurlow was not a Marxist or perhaps even a critic of capitalism. And his remarks uh, were made about a particularly powerful and interesting uh, joint stock company called the East India Company. And I'm thrilled today that rather than talking about Silicon Valley and AI, we're talking about an early example of um, a private company called the East India Company. Uh, by one of uh, the great historians, scholars in the world, the uh, India-based um, historian, William uh, Dalrymple. He's, he, a couple of years ago, he wrote a book called The Anarchy. Here we have the, the British uh, subtitle, The Relentless Rise of the East India Company. Perhaps a more truthful 
subtitle is uh, the East India Company, Corporate Violence and the Pillage of an Empire. That's the subtitle on the U.S. paperback that has just come out. And I'm really thrilled and honored that William is joining us from London. He's there for a week, but he normally lives in India. Um, William, welcome. Thank you so much, Andrew. Great pleasure to be here. Sebastian Malaby, an old mate of mine. I didn't realize he was there yesterday. It's, uh... Well, he wasn't actually there, William. He was online. <laughs> on but, Zoom. Uh, he, uh, he, uh, he's written an interesting book, I'm sure, as you know, about uh, venture capital. William, am I right to, for a show about the East India Company to note Facebook? Is there a, a clear narrative it's a, between the East it's India a very... Company and Facebook? It, it's a very fair analogy and one that I actually make in the in the introduction and conclusion of the book. There, there, I mean, there are similarities and differences, obviously, but both were, you know, the, the great powerful company uh, of their day. The difference is that while uh, Facebook or Google or Microsoft can uh, harvest our data and listen into our conversations, the East India Company was rather more to the point in that it had the largest private army in the world. Uh, it, it had an army uh, in uh, 1800 that was exactly twice the size of the British army. The British Crown Army had 100,000 men in its ranks just before it rearmed to fight Napoleon. And the same year, the East India Company Army reached 200,000 Indian mercenaries called sepoys fighting for this corporate uh, business based out of one office in London. Uh, unlike uh, the big sprawling multinationals of today, it was a very tight organization. A hundred years uh, into its history, it had only 35 employees in its head office. And when it began storming um, the power centers of Mughal power in India in the mid 18th century, there were only 250 white British uh, officers working for it in India. And yet this skeleton staff, with the aid of money borrowed from Indian bankers and uh, using it to recruit uh, mercenary soldiers, succeeded in conquering uh, India, which then, you know, today we still tend to think wrongly of India as a poor country. But in the 18th century, India was the richest country in the world. Yeah, and that was one of the astonishing things, actually, about reading your amazing book. Uh, Edmund Burke famously uh, described the East India Company as a state in the guise of a merchant. But it was a kind of rival state. Very briefly, William, how did it become this? How did it go from being... Um, uh, a joint stock company, I think, was founded in the 16th century to something that rivaled the state by the 19th century. It had a very slow start. Uh, and in fact, its, its first incarnation was basically a failure. It, it started off to try and take on the Dutch, uh, importing spices from what we today call Indonesia, but they then called the East Indies. Uh, and... Um, they sent out uh, boats and, and ships and, and, and brought lots of spices home. But within about 40 years, it was clear that the Dutch had better financing, better captains and better ships. And um, a deal was a rather famous deal was done whereby the, the British swapped uh, their spice island, which is called Run, where all the world's nutmeg came from, for a small muddy island in the Hudson River called Manhattan. Mm. Um, which is how Manhattan, of course, came into <laughs> came to, uh, into British hands initially. But the, the the extraordinary story is is how, having failed in its first incarnation as a spice shipper and importer, uh, it then made a very very brilliant decision on how to how to reinvent itself. 
Uh, and it focused not on Indonesia, but on India, and not on spices, but on textiles. And this was just the period when the Mughal Empire was starting. The Mughal Empire is normally associated with the Taj Mahal and, you know, these incredibly rich Mughal emperors dropping mangoes and, into, their, uh, in, into the mouths of, of uh, nautch girls or something. But in fact, it was the number one industrial power of its day. And 40% uh, of the world's GDP was produced uh, in Bengal in one million looms. So what Silicon Valley is today, this, this extraordinary generator of wealth, uh, in, in a relatively small geographical area, Bengal was uh, in the 18th century. And in the mid-18th century, the East India Company suddenly militarized. And initially, as, as a defensive action, uh, uh, it, it, it took on the host uh, nations. Um, and where but, it was uh, William, let, let me jump in here. And you, your book deals with this, of course. But in very simple terms, why did the British government, which was... Was it the colonial power at that point, or did the British colonialization of India come from the East India Company? What came first? A great deal of British colonial activity everywhere in the world came not from the British government, but from early corporations. Suddenly, in uh, the mid-16th century, you get this brand new idea of a joint stock company. And where that differs from what had gone before, let's say, for example, the Merchants Guild, if you were a bunch of London merchants dealing in wool, you'd club together and you'd ship your uh, your wool to, to Holland or wherever you were, you were selling it, uh, and uh, you'd reap the profits. But the difference with the joint stock company was that individuals had nothing to do with the running of the business. Any old investor in the streets, even if he was quite a modest uh, shopkeeper selling wine or leather or... Um, Oh, it, whatever in the in the streets of London could invest a small amount of money and get a share of the profits, and, and that's this what suddenly... we in Silicon Valley called democratization of the financial markets, right? So this this was an a new idea, and so we, you know the early the early uh, businesses in medieval Europe, such as you know the Marco Polo company going off to China, was you know a father, son, and an uncle. And then you get something like the Medici Bank, which again is basically at the end of the day, however big it is and however powerful it is, is run by a family. But the joint stock company, which begins with the Muscovy Company, which is chartered in 1538, um, means that suddenly huge amounts of capital can potentially be unleashed if enough people invest. And that changes the whole nature of things. And the East India Company, I think, is the fifth joint stock company ever to have been chartered. And it's instantly authorized by, uh, in its charter, to wage war. Because in those days, trade took place you know, often with, with, with cannon on board the ships and with a few... So it's kind of like a militarized, a militarized Facebook or a militarized Google. Well, not just militarized. I mean, the equivalent today would be Google with, with nuclear weapons and Facebook with, with, with submarines and jets. Um, you know, the sort of stuff we're seeing the Russians getting up to on the Ukrainian border is what the East India Company very quickly got up to uh, in the East. And in the, and in the mid 18th century, this company, which has been you know, started by shipping spices backwards and forwards uh, and then gone into the textile trade very successfully and made a lot of money in it, suddenly does something completely different. It starts conquering chunks of Indian territory. And what's enabled it to do that and why, which it absolutely couldn't have done even 10 years earlier, is that the Mughal Empire, uh, Mughal Empire has broken up. What was a single massive empire 
going from Kabul and Afghanistan right down to southern India, including all of Pakistan and all of Bangladesh, uh, and which together, as I said, generated about 40% of the world's trade and, uh, and, and industrial output, shatters in, a, in the decade, um, well, in the, kind of, in, the, in the years after the, the, the mid uh, the mid uh, uh, 16th century, sorry, sorry, 1750 onwards, the Mughal Empire begins to fall apart. And it's like you take a big Baroque mirror and you throw it out of a second floor of a window. It shatters into a million pieces. That's what happens to the Mughal Empire. Suddenly, rather than a big, powerful unitary state, you've got hundreds of little uh, city-states and confederations. And the two powers that pick this off are the East India Company of London and the French equivalent, the Compagnie des Andes, uh, run out of Paris. And these two companies are able to pick a fight with these enormous Indian powers uh, because they've imported the new military technology. Uh, the cutting-edge military uh, hardware of its day is basically invented by Frederick the, uh, Frederick the Great of Prussia, in the 18th century, he tries it on a whole series of, of European wars, like the, the War of the Austrian Succession. And this involves um, uh, infantry with bayonets, firing in file in unified, disciplined units, uh, horse artillery, a lot of 18th century new uh, work on ballistics, exploding shells. And this whole package is imported by the French and the English to India. And, and for about 30 years, there is a gap when there's not a, there's no Indian power that can really stand in the way of this new technology. Eventually, by the 1780s, the Indians got it too, and it, and, and and you know it's, it's back to uh, the normal uh, equations of power. But uh, for 30 years, these two East India companies, first the British, and then they knock the French out, and then only the British carry on conquering more and more of India, till by about 1800, they've conquered the whole of the Mughal Empire south of the Himalayas. So it sounds like uh, a kind of uh, a, a pirate capitalism. Um, is it any surprise yeah. that this came out of the British Empire? We had a show last year with the historian Lawrence Burgreen on Francis Drake as the pirate, his unusual relationship with Elizabeth I and the Age of Empires, his founding of the British Empire. This was very much in the character of British thinking, British behaviour, wasn't it? I mean, it, it absolutely, was and, and it, it wasn't, you know, like pirates. The, a lot of the early East India Company employees were pirates, and and their backers were people that were backing what were then politely called the privateers, uh, running out of London, uh, who 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 made money just raiding Portuguese and Spanish treasure ships, sailing backwards and forwards, cutting gold and, and other precious things from Peru and Mexico, from the Aztec and the conquered Aztec and Inca empires. And the initial meeting uh, of the East India Company, we have the subscription list, and, and many of these people are, are privateers. Many of the sailors who are recruited are privateers. And indeed, the first East India Company voyage to Indonesia, they get you know nine tenths of the way there, and then they see a Portuguese ship coming in the opposite direction, stuffed full of nutmeg, and they don't bother even going to uh, to, to go and buy it in the in the harbour. They just they just capture the Portuguese carrack, cart the stuff from the hold of one ship into the other, and then send it back to London and sell it for a million pounds. So it it, it is piracy, plain and straight uh, at the beginning. But by uh, the eighteenth century, you're, you're uh, through no fault of your own. You're a member of the British aristocracy. Uh, but, uh, in, in contrast with the British royal family, you actually have done something. Um, 
<laughs> a lot of the, the British aristocracy acquired their titles, their land, their wealth through this looting of the world. I mean, you even note um, in your book and in some of your speeches that the British not only looted India, uh, but they stole the word loot from the, the uh, from, 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 from India. And of course, the Indians now use the word loot to refer to the British behavior uh, in the South Continent. Um, yeah, they, how how dark a stain is this on, on Britain? Well, if, if you look at the whole um, history of the British in India, uh, because the first 250 years is, is a corporate thing run out of an office blog, but then the British government takes over. And in 1858, the East India Company is effectively nationalized uh, and it becomes a state institution. Then you have 90 years, which is called the Raj, uh, when it's you know Queen Victoria and all that sort of stuff. And between it, uh, I mean, you know, there, there, there are many different answers that different historians would would give, and 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 would also have different answers that, that different historians would give at different times. But um, the basic reality that I think sums it up is that India was the leading economic power in the world when the British arrived, and it was a you know impoverished third world country when the British left. Meanwhile, the British moved from being the not quite the poor man of Europe because you know there was a lot of wealth in uh, in some areas of England, particularly the you know the areas that made wool, such as Oxfordshire and, and Suffolk and so on in the Middle Ages. But basically, you know, England was way behind France or Italy, and in in the in the sixteenth century, miles behind Spain and Portugal, which had all the money coming in from the New World. What changes that? Two things change it. One is the loot coming in from India and a lot of military victories in India leading to a, millions of pounds being shipped from Mughal India to Britain. And all those gorgeous 18th century uh, National Trust houses that people pay uh, to go around and have cream teas in, many of them in the early 18th century are built out of uh, Indian funds. Then the second thing that happens, of course, is, is the Caribbean slave trade and the Caribbean plantations. Yeah, I want, uh, to talk um, about, uh, I want to talk about slavery um, in the Wikipedia entry, at least, of uh, on the East India Company. And you talk about this in your book as well, um, that uh, the East India Company's archives suggest its involvement in the slave trade began in 1684. How central is the East India Company in terms of legitimizing the commerce of slavery? It's not a huge part of the East India Company's income, and it's only in the very early days. That's done out of another company called the Royal Africa Company, which which is the big slaving kind of mothership, if you like, that is responsible for. So they horrific. dodged the moral bill, the, the moral bullet on that one. Then is that fair? Yeah, but I mean, it wasn't the question of morality. It was just a question of they made more profit looting Mughal India than they did by <laughs> by starting plantations in the Caribbean. And uh, I mean, the amount of money brought out of India was colossal. Some of it was genuine trade. You know, the, the British uh, find that. And then the, trade. You use the tr the word trade. I mean, a lot of leftist historians, Marxists, might argue that. Really, when we use this word trade, it's a form of piracy, and it certainly was underlined by the behavior of the East India Company in, in, in uh, South Asia. Well, th there are a variety of activities that the East India Company gets up to. Some of it is trade like we know it. You know, you, you, you sail into a port, you find someone selling textiles, you buy it and you sail home again and sell it for more. But the East India Company very quickly turns to violence and to 
conquest. So that by the time that it's it's fought, this, there's one central early battle called the Battle of Plassey, which is fought in 1756. Which and from English that point, uh, schoolboys learn as a <laughs> exactly as a, as a great national victory. triumph, right? Uh, and it, and far from being a national triumph, the whole thing is a fix. Uh, the East India Company is paid to pay the Battle of Plassey by a bunch of Indian financiers who seek profit for themselves in an East India Company victory. Uh, you know, financiers anywhere in the world understand other financiers and often want to do deals with them. Um, and it's that sort of situation. And not only do they bribe Clive to fight the Battle of Plassey, they bribe a lot of the uh, Mughal Nawab's troops not to fight and, and just to walk off the battlefield. So the whole thing is rigged. But from this point on, and then another victory 10 years later at the place called Buxar, the East India Company finds itself in possession of the whole of the richest area uh, of the Mughal Empire. And suddenly, the, the, the model of trade changes. No longer do you have to take money, bring some gold from London, buy stuff, and then sell it for more when you get home. Instead, what you do is you just tax the peasantry and loot the country. Then you buy the stuff you want to sell with, with, the, uh, with, with, the, with, with the, the tax. Uh, and you ship it home for profit. So it, it's win-win. You don't have to bring any gold out at all to begin with. Yeah, uh, it, just... uh, it sounds like a, some of the, the business models of startup Silicon Valley companies. It's win-win. <laughs> Nobody can lose except, of course, the people being Everyone exploited. Else. <laughs> um, William, we had Jeffrey Wheatcroft on the show a couple of weeks ago. He's written quite a critical book of Winston Churchill. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with the book. It's called yeah, yeah. Churchill's Shadow. What Wheatcroft acknowledges is that the one thing Churchill did brilliantly was tell a story. And in terms of his telling of the story, uh, in, uh, this telling of the story of England's greatness, of its uniqueness, India was central. And India was, of course, one of the great moral question marks in Churchill's career and ideology. Um, Churchill, of course, contributed to the idea of India and Britain, Britain's greatness being rooted in its conquest of India. To, to what extent was the East India Company not only a commercial business, but an ideological one as, as well in terms of building that Churchillian narrative about the, the moral virtues of, of British conquest of South Asia? I don't think the company ever really tried to justify anything. They didn't need to. It was, it was such a profitable business. It didn't have to do the the kind of jumps and uh, through the jumping through moral hoops that the Raj later had to do to justify its its governance. They did get criticised. I mean, you know that you know there they were certainly got, investigations. They certainly got criticised. Yeah, but they, they, Warren Hastings, who you say didn't deserve, was. Uh, was tried. Uh, he was um, he, he was involved with the company. Um, what was the, the the general? I know this is probably a too general a question. But what was the what was the reputation of the East India Company in say in eighteenth century, seventeenth eighteenth century England with its particularly amongst progressives? Did they finger it as a as an evil in, institution like? Progressives today focus on Facebook and Google and Amazon. Absolutely. Uh, and one of the big surprises of, uh, of writing this book was to find the amount of resistance there was to East India Company uh, activities at the time. And this varied from 
a lot of snobby stuff about sort of uh, you, you you were saying how um, at one point how the company was a aristocratic affair. In actual fact, the the, the company was very solidly middle class, and uh, a lot of aristocratic noses got stuck in the air uh, when the uh, when the East India Company people came back with fortunes and started buying themselves estates and buying themselves uh, peerages and buying themselves seats in Parliament. And some of the criticism of the East India Company is rooted in snobbery. Uh, because uh, as as the aristocracy see it, a lot of jumped up merchants are making fortunes. Uh, but there is a great deal of moral indignation too, particularly when whistleblowers start reporting the carnage that's going on in India. Um, the Italy company manages to cover up a lot of their iniquities initially because no one can get to India without an East India Company passport. So it isn't like they're, you know, roving civil servants. Uh, it's not like to get into the Ukraine now or, or Russia. Exactly, yeah. Or the, uh, no. or, or, or the western parts of China. Exactly that. No one can get in and report the Uyghur genocide because anyone that's spotted, spotted being critical of, of, of China will not get a visa. The same is true of East India Company in the 18th century. And the... Um, uh, it's only when two or three whistleblowers within the company publish anonymous accounts that not one, but three million Bengalis have died in a famine in 1770. Right. That the full scale of the uh, of the carnage going on. And Horace Walpole, who's one of the great diarists of the period, writes that we have outdone the atrocities uh, of uh, of the Spanish in Peru uh, or in Mexico. We have outdone Cortez. Was is Walpole was Walpole right? Uh, well, I mean, the, the 1770 famine was not caused by the East India Company; it was a natural famine. But the reality was that in any other situation in India, that there are often famines, and people keep reserves of grain in granaries, so that the, so that if when a famine comes, you you which it often does in uh, in pre modern India. Uh, you can give out grain to starving people. But the East India Company not only has not bothered to put any grain in the granaries because it's just there to make a quick profit, uh, but it also doesn't see it as its job to look after the people of India. It just conquers them and, ex and extracts money for them, for its shareholders. That is what it thinks is its job. So while neighboring states set up soup kitchens and, and feed starving people and create employment schemes like, for example, the Nawab of Avad and Lucknow upstream from Calcutta uh, employs 100,000 people to build him an enormous um, mosque complex, Just uh, and they're all paid a, a pittance a day, enough to, enough to keep them alive. Uh, but the East India Company doesn't bother with that. So three million people die. And then, of course, what happens is that they find that they've they've killed the goose that laid the golden egg, that all the Bengali weavers who've been making all these textiles and all the stuff they wanted to trade, uh, that the place has gone bankrupt. So astonishingly, what you find in, in 1774 is that this company, which has been making such enormous profits, and only two years earlier, the shareholders have increased their dividends from 10 to 12.5%. When they hear that the company's pulled in uh, full taxation despite the famine, the, the troops are sent out into the villages, and anyone that doesn't pay their taxes is hanged, whether or not they're starving. And the company's uh, the company shareholders are so thrilled with this that they increase their dividend as a result. But two years on, everyone's dead, and <laughs> so there's no one to make the uh, the materials which the, generate the profits. And it's a classic case of of corporate asset strippers stripping so so everything the cupboard's so bad that there's nothing left uh, we are and... talking with william <laughs> Dalrymple, the author of 
The Anarchy, the East India Company, Corporate Violence and the Pillage of an Empire is just out in paperback in the US. And William, like all great historians, makes history relevant to the contemporary age. Your history ends at the beginning of the 19th century, William. But I've always been curious, as perhaps the greatest liberal thinker of the 19th century, J.S. Mill, his day job was at the East India Company. Was there any, did he ever... Was there ever any question about some some something a bit odd here? That here was a man who spent his life writing in favor of women's rights and representation and the suffering of the English working class, and yet he was working for the East India Company, which, as you suggest, is one of the, the vehicles of terrible yeah. suffering and exploitation. Perhaps a company that that more than anything else captures the the evils of colonialism. Well, I mean, you know, there are many other parallels to that. You could Isaiah Berlin, the great, uh, uh, the great supporter of, of freedom and, uh, and liberalism, was also one of the people who, who supported the expulsion of the Palestinians in uh, in 1948, and, and and was one of the great supporters of Zionism. So, it, you know, there are many examples of people who who in in one theatre uh, are supporting liberalism. Uh, Berlin's day job was not working for the uh, for the Israeli government. I mean, Mill worked for the for, for, for the East India Company. For I think uh, I think Berlin did work for the Israeli government. If I'm if I'm not uh, okay, well, well one thing that, that's like, yeah. another controversial yeah. subject. I'm not defending Berlin, but um, the so Milne is is not a, is not uh, at all uh, a, a name remembered happily in India. Uh, he produced a history of India, which became the standard. Uh, text on India for East India Company employees without ever having gone to India, uh, and which rubbishes Indian civilization and uh, and Indian literature and Indian arts, uh, and presents Britain as the great saviour. So, from Mill's point of view, he I suppose he justified it to himself by viewing the East India Company as the saviour of India, complete and utter nonsense, rubbish, and wishful thinking. But uh, that 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 was a common view in the nineteenth century. Uh, Let's and, stand back, uh, William, um, and, and you do this brilliantly as a historian. The broader significance of all this, we had Kehinde Andrews on the show last year, another very insightful, articulate, radical historian. He has a new book out, The New Age of Empire, um, and he very much places India at the, at the heart of European exploitation and racism of the um, of the non-European world. Where would you place all this in the context of people like Andrew's thesis about European colonialization? Well, the, this is where it all begins. Uh, I mean, the first big takeover uh, of a great chunk of Asia. I mean, obviously, the, 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 the Spanish and the Portuguese have been at it previously in South America. But the first time that a European power uh, subjugates, asset strips, exploits, and sends back to the motherland the profits of a great chunk of Asia uh, is is the East India Company in uh, in India, and not only is it the 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 first, it's it's the greatest seizure of loot and territory uh, in the history of uh, of European exploitation. Because India is not some small minor uh, periphery uh, uh, geographically; it is it was along with Ming China one of the two richest and and the biggest centres of global trade. Uh, uh, it, it, for most of history, uh, and so, the, so I mean, the, the, the sheer weirdness of this story is something that never leaves me. 
how you used on the earth? word weird, um, uh, William. Um, I had a guest, Joseph Henrik, on the show. He has a, a new book out. It's not so new now. Called Weird about the origins of Western colonialism or superiority being based on a development within the history of the church. But my reading of your work suggests that it's got nothing to do with, you know, the Weberian concept of Protestantism or the capitalist ethic. This ultimately comes down to piracy, to theft. Is that fair? No, I think I think it's obviously a bit more complicated than that. I think there there are two reasons that the East India Company is able to seize great chunks of India in the 18th century. I don't think it's due to Protestantism at all, but it's uh, one is a military thing. One is this new technology I was talking about, developed by Frederick the right. Great, Mughal cavalry warfare, which is what is used uh, throughout the subcontinent, which has been the, the mode of, of, of fighting wars there for a thousand years cannot cope with this new infantry and artillery combination. And and, and that is one thing. The second thing uh, is the level of finance that the East India Company can generate, uh, particularly as it begins to seize more and more of the uh, control of India. There is, for example, in the 1780s, uh, uh, a ruler called Tipu Sultan, the, the, uh, the Sultan of Mysore, uh, and he is the first Indian ruler to realize that it isn't rocket science uh, militarily what these guys are doing, uh, that uh, that you can train up uh, Indians uh, perfectly well as the East India Company can to, to fight uh, in ranks with muskets. He gets better muskets from the French than the English are using. He gets very good cannon and he begins to defeat the English. But in the end, he's defeated uh, not because of his military incapacity, but because he simply can't raise the same amount of capital and produce the same number of troops that the East India Company can then do. So there, there are two things. There's the military thing and there's the, uh, the just the sheer level of finance that they can throw, that money they can throw at their wars. Uh, William, as I said, we had a show about uh, Wheatcroft's Churchill shadow. What about the India shadow? We've done lots of shows about modern Britain. We had the journalist Sathnam Sanghir on a show. He has an interest. Fabulous in guy. Yeah, yeah uh, I'm sure you know his work. Also, uh, Philip Stevens, the FT journalist, written a book about the not-so-great Britain. Is India the shadow of contemporary Britain, if we're to make sense of Britain's decline, of its rather farcical position in the world today? Do we really need to go back to India, and particularly the uh, East India Company? My view of this is that there are, there are three things that, that propel Britain from the periphery of Europe in the 16th century to the very richest country in the world by the uh, 19th century. One is the looting of India and the conquest of India and the all the wealth that India, possessing India and trading with India produces. Secondly is, is the Caribbean slave trade. Uh, remember that uh, uh, the British uh, had more interests, uh, were making more money out of Jamaica than they were out of uh, America at the time of the American Revolution. Uh, and so, you know, the, the Caribbean slave trade is generating vast wealth as well. Both of these then funnel and provide the uh, the seed capital to start the, uh, the Industrial Revolution. And so these three factors, industrialization, India and slavery between them, turn India, uh, turn Great Britain into the premier economy uh, until until the rise of America. Well, I like how you use seized capital, uh, William, as a, as, a, as a concept that, of course, is um, very popular out here on the West Coast. <laughs> uh, we've done a number of shows about the future of capitalism, and 
more and more people. I had Alec Ross, for example, used to be Hillary Clinton's major advisor on foreign policy on the show. He has a new book out suggesting that private companies have way too much power. What does your book teach us about controlling private companies, not just Facebook and Google and Amazon, who are obviously particularly scary, but the AI companies, for example, on her horizon? You, you end your book by suggesting that the East India Company and the history of your history of the East India Company is as relevant today as it was two or three hundred years ago. What does it teach us? Well, the, the, the East India Company is, is a story of a company which not only turns its guns on India and loots and asset strips India, but it also has an incredibly powerful shadow effect in Britain itself. Uh, within a century of its uh, founding, it's founded in 1600. In 1690, you get the very first case of, of corporate bribery. Uh, when the governor of the company is put in the Tower of London, when he's caught uh, bunging packets of cash to MPs in order to vote and to get them to vote for the uh, the extension of the company's monopoly. From that point, the East India Company actually invents the whole nation of corporate lobbying. On top of which, a lot of the more successful East India Company returnees, having made their fortunes in India, buy 18th century rotten boroughs and get elected to parliament in such numbers that they actually form a vote block uh, within parliament. And on top of all that, about half uh, half the MPs in parliament own East India Company shares. So I'm not going to do anything to... Yeah, which is uh, very uh, uh, chillingly contemporary. So so what does it teach (laughs) us not to allow... In this this case, so what's interesting is in this case, you have this battle between the power of the state and the uh, battle of the power of the corporation. And in this story, in uh, due to the um, the famine which I talked about, when a third of the population of Bengal dies of, of quite unnecessary starvation, the company then goes bankrupt. And at that point, you get a, a Lehman Brothers too big to fail analogy, because the the uh, the state bails out the company by buying fifty percent of the shares, uh, in a way that, that you know, obviously the U.S. government didn't do with Lehman Brothers, but the British government did do with NatWest, for example. Uh, and so from that point, 1774, the state becomes the part owner of the East India Company. And becomes and, and from that point, the state wields more and more power over the corporation until in 1858, the state defeats the company by nationalizing it and rolling up the company and, and, and imposing state control. So in this particular story of the state versus the corporation, the state wins. But, you know, is that going to be the true for the next generation? Because as state, we know... Uh, and, 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 and the victory of the state wasn't a victory of good over evil, was it? We should also, I think, remember at this point that, you know, it, the story, the, the, there are many, many stories in history of, of corporations overthrowing states. For example, uh, 1956 in Iran, uh, Mossadegh, the first democratically elected Iranian leader, is brought down by uh, by a corporate coup um, handled by uh, the CIA and MI6 at the behest of the Anglo-Persian oil company who are about to be nationalized. A similar thing happens a couple of years later in Guatemala uh, when United Fruit uh, ring the alarm bell when they, they hear they're about to be nationalized and, and all their farmland with all their banana ter- groves 
are going to be nationalized by the Guatemalan socialist government. A coup is uh, is 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 brought about, uh, and the phrase "banana republic" uh, yeah. enters the language. Then, of course, I suppose ITT in Chile in 1977, ITT uh, encouraged the CIA to bring down Allende, and you get uh, you know the whole succession of hideous uh, South American dictatorships uh, com- coming out of that. So, there are many examples in recent 20th century history of corporations uh, which have brought down states. Uh, Now in our own time, we have these enormously rich uh, corporations, Tesla, um, Facebook, Google, but also, you know, the big oil companies, uh, ExxonMobil and so on, which all of which have um, annual turnovers vastly greater than, than most nations in the world. Uh, right, I mean, uh, what Facebook lost last week, and I think uh, this picture, since you started talking, uh, William, uh, Mark Zuckerberg is sweating even more. Uh, but, uh, you know, Facebook's $220 billion loss last week is more than the vast majority of, of, of national GDP. So it is astonishing, and it's wonderful to talk to you, William. Um, Thank you. you know, uh, there, there's so much more actually to talk about. I'd love to have you back on to talk more broadly about economics. Um, as I said, Afghanistan is something we should talk about another time. My last book, Return of the King, uh, is the East Indian Company in Afghanistan, and the parallels between yeah. what happened last summer and that is uh, is incredible. Well, maybe we'll get you back on to talk about Afghanistan, um, and lovely, lovely. the modern Middle East. You, you, you're the author of many prize-winning, best-selling books. The the latest one, as I said, is uh, The Anarchy, The East India Company, Corporate Violence and the Pillage of an Empire. That's the US subtitle, much more honest than the British one. Um, you're talking to me from London. You're just there for a week, William. What else should people be reading in these strange times, early February 2022, in addition to your new paperback book? So the books I've enjoyed lately, um, there's a wonderful new history of the Ottoman Empire I highly recommend, a guy called Mark Baer. Um, he makes the point that the, the, the Ottomans, have you had him yet? No, do you know him? You have to introduce me. I'm very happy to do that. He's, he's in the LSE and it's a fabulous book. He repaints the Ottomans as, 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 as a, a prominent part of the Age of Discovery, that the Ottomans are doing as much as, uh, as all uh, these uh, Western explorers and the Portuguese that... Uh, at the height of their power, a single um, uh, Sokolu Mehmet Pasha, who is, who is one of the great viziers of the Ottoman Empire, is sending troops to weapons to Sumatra to thwart the Portuguese there, mm. other weapons to Andalusia to try and uh, uh, spoil the game of the Spanish. Uh, he's he's building bridges in Serbia, um, trying trying to develop a, a, an early version of the Suez Canal in Egypt, and all this, you know, from yeah. from. from we've, we've done a couple of shows yeah. about the Ottoman Empire, so that would be a great one. What else? Um, an, another book um, I hugely enjoyed was is about the Vikings. Somebody called Kat Jarman wrote a book yeah. called River Kings, and again, this has this fantastically global perspective and and i've always imagined you know, the vikings primarily interested in sort of raiding monasteries in ireland and that sort of stuff she talks about how most of the viking loot is actually uh most of viking wealth comes from trade with the arab world uh and with constantinople uh and they have this back route uh down the volga and uh, and all those uh russian rivers leading down to the black sea um and they are far more viking activity is focused on that 
that is focused on poor Anglo-Saxon England and uh, uh, and uh, Celtic Ireland. Wonderful book. Another wonderful book, completely different. Um, uh, a, a young uh, uh, Indian American um, uh, author called Akash Kapoor uh, wrote a beautiful book called Better to Have Gone, which is about this utopian experiment in 1960s India called Oroville, which, of course, like all utopias, ends up as being a, yeah, a horrible corrupt on the show, too. Um, so uh, Akash is, is a beautiful writer, and he was born as part of this. He centers it around the story of of the mysterious death of his wife's mother and her lover on the same day in this uh, on the edge of this utopia, uh, and uh, it, it exposes that you know what inevitably happens when humans try to create a utopia. They often end up creating something far darker. It's a bit like the beach, but a non-fiction version. Well, William Dalrymple, uh, Dalrymple, a real honor to have you on the show. I've always been a big admirer. Thank you. Great. Wonderful uh, show. Thank you. And we'll have you back. We'll talk Afghanistan. We'll talk South Asia. We'll talk With the pleasure. We'll talk the future of everything because it's only <laughs> historians who understand the future because they know the past. William Dalrymple, honor, keep well, and best thank of luck you, with uh, everything this year.